dad was Mr. Roberts, his sister is Barbarella, and he's Captain America. Not only is Peter Fonda a member of an acting dynasty of Ming proportions, he's also an Oscar-nominated actor, screenwriter, and thanks, of course, to Easy Rider, forever the coolest cat on two wheels. He was in London this week as part of a BFI season dedicated to his old friend, co-star, and occasional attempted assassin, Dennis Hopper. As part of a very special Empire podcast, he stopped by the pod booth to talk about that countercultural classic, having a Beatles song named after him, surfing in Escape to LA, beekeeping in Uli's Gold, and, of course, the the 1960s. Yes, he can remember them. Enjoy. We're really thrilled and honoured to be joined on the Empire podcast this week by a true legend of Hollywood, Peter Fonda. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for coming along. Oh, you have no idea. It's my pleasure. Believe me, doing something like this is so cool. Now, you were just telling us about your Tuesday evening. Yes, uh, I finished a project shooting in Utah. What an interesting name for a state in the United States. Uh, actually, Ridley Scott is executive producer of it, and I finished it. The next day, I'm on a plane coming here. We arrived at about 2.30 in the afternoon, kind of blasted out from, this, from the travel from Los Angeles, but Chris Martin was playing at Royal Albert Hall, and I love his work, and I did a, a video with him, and I, of course, I had to go see it. So I, you know, in the, through the fog of travel, I, I made it, got to the uh, the theater, and I was sitting in a box with Peter Gabriel. This is kind of cool, you know. <laughs> and, of course, uh, Chris Martin's fans, Coldplay, their, their fans were all over the place. And uh, that's very neat to have when you're doing a performance to have your fans as who you're performing for because they give so much great energy back. So Chris was fabulous. The show was incredibly cool. And uh, afterwards, uh, Peter Gabriel and I went to uh, to see Chris after the show for just a little meet and greet. And there was Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Hemsworth uh, and, and probably four or five other people that I didn't pay any attention to at all other than Jennifer Lawrence, that I didn't pay any attention to at all because I was so interested in, in saying hi to Chris and talking with Peter Gabriel. So Captain America has met four. Yeah, <laughs> did you did you uh, have a conversation about that when you when you met or no? Uh, you know, um, <laughs> it, it's it's a different Captain America. <laughs> I I don't mean to try to put myself into that situation at all. He's very good at what he's doing, and so is Jennifer Lawrence. But then again, so is Peter Gabriel. And somebody was asking me about Easy Rider, and uh, are you tired of talking about that? As I used to be. But then I realized that it means so much to so many people that I shouldn't, you know, be saying things like, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I looked at Peter Gabriel and I, I said to Chris, do you think if somebody came up and like like you were playing tonight and people were yelling the song they wanted you to play and they yelled Sledgehammer, do you think that Gabriel w wouldn't sing it? Fat Chance, of course he'd sing it. Or uh, In Your Eyes, you know. Just two that come off the top of my head. You damn right, he'll say it. <laughs> if Peter Gabriel and Chris Martin and some and Mick Jagger, let's go even older, are able to get out and do their stuff, and and you want to hear Sticky Fingers or whatever your favorite song, you know, if John Lennon were still around, I just all I'd want to do is hear him play in my life over and over and <laughs> over. That is one of the best songs I play. I play guitar upside down and backwards. I <laughs> no, seriously, guys. I take a, a right-handed guitar, and I pull it over. So my right hand is actually fingering the chords, and my left hand is flat picking. Ah. Because you're left-handed. Yeah, and some people say like Jimmy. I said I wish like Jimmy. <laughs> 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 I Let wish. <laughs> 
and so I was, you know, I, I enjoy music. It's something I have to do, although I never would have fought my way through such a right-handed instrument. <laughs> Speaking of music, you, you, is it's true that you obviously a huge Beatles fan. And you, Absolutely. you, like a lot of people, I think at the time, waited till Revolver was released, ran down, got hold of a copy of it on LP. And is it true that you, you kind of scoured it for, for hidden messages and backtracking and all that kind of stuff? No, you know, I just knew that stuff goes on. What, it's, what it is, it's, it's a measure, it's a beat, it's a moment. It's filling the moment. What I do as an actor is fill moments. We don't just memorize lines. So what they're doing is, you know, and whether it's Pink Floyd doing it or, or the Beatles, you know, they have weird things happening that have nothing to do with the song mm. necessarily. Um, that's just part of, that's also part of the song. And uh, everybody trying to find something weird about, uh, you know, Lennon playing himself backwards. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's just cool, I thought. You know, I don't have to run it backwards <laughs> to find out what he's saying. I don't give a rat's ass. <laughs> I, I care about that moment. And to have it explained to me means I'm not in that moment. And I don't need to know if he's seen some, you know, finish. What, what do people think he was seeing? Some devil thing or some evil thing? Of course, this is our generation's parents, so to speak, thinking these guys are terrible. They're, 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 going to, they're like Elvis. They're going to ruin everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you just, I didn't scare her for anything, but I was absolutely blown away by she said, I know what it's like to be dead. I thought, far out. I never thought they'd make a song of that. <laughs> but that's your song, because there's my, this well, legendary story about it's, you meeting. It's not my song, it's just what I was saying to George, who was having a bad trip. Mm. See, George and John had been dosed without being told. This is a terrible thing to do, is give somebody a, a, a drug like LSD without them knowing it. Because, you know, you think, oh, I'm, I'm losing it, this is me, I'm going down the river to the loony bin. You know? <laughs> um, and so this was the second time that they had taken LSD. And George was having a tough time, and I and David Crosby. I don't know why Cross thought I was not loaded, but it came up to me and said, "You got to go down and help George." I said, "Why am I the tour guide?" <laughs> you know, uh, but I went down and I said, "George, don't worry about it. This is a drug that makes you feel like you're dying, and your brain doesn't want to do that, so it's trying to stop, and that's the conflict. Mm. So just let it go. He's out. I know what it's like to be dead, because in fact." A month before I turned 11, I shot myself in the stomach by accident, and uh, I died three times in the operating table. Loss of blood, heart stopped. Mm. So I'm still here to tell you the story, so I was trying to tell George, don't worry about it, you know, just let go, let the drug take you on the trip, you know. And John was sitting right there looking at me, and me telling George several times, no, it's okay, George, it's all right, I know what it's like to be dead. Finally, John said to me, you know what it's like to be dead. Who put all those thoughts in your head? You know, you're making me feel like I've never been born. You're making me feel like I've never been born. When I was a boy, everything was right. Because I said, when I was talking about how I had died, I shot myself. It wasn't some weird moment. It was, I was just a kid making a dumb mistake with a pistol. You know, I was everything was all right. And when I was a boy, everything was right. <laughs> and I never said anything about it. Even after Revolver came out, I never said anything about it. It was... John, in an interview to Rolling Stone, was the one who popped it out. So I said, well, fine, if he's talked about it, then I can. Because it's quite something to be part of a Beatles song, <laughs> you know. Yes. And for a certain generation, that's like being part of an, an Elvis Presley song. I, as far as I'm concerned, I, I knew well, I loved his stuff, I loved his work and all that, but what he, he could not touch what the Beatles put out. Mm. He couldn't touch what the Stones did either. I mean, you guys come up with some pretty hot groups. 
<laughs> did, I was going to say, did you know when you listened to the album for the first time that that song was going to be on it and that you were a part of it? I had no idea. So it was a total surprise for me when I heard the song go off. I thought, that is so incredible. And then I thought, well, nobody will ever cover that song. And until 98, I was in a, doing a film in Charleston, South Carolina, and I was driving a car around, and on came, I can't remember the guy's name, but he played with the, the Eagles. He, uh, he covered the song. It was really dramatic. I thought, far out, he did it. What the fuck? <laughs> but you haven't inspired a Coldplay song yet, to the best of your knowledge. Oh, well, I did, I did a video on magic, for, but I haven't inspired a song yet. Okay, <laughs> keep trying. If Chris hangs out with me enough, maybe something will happen. <laughs> I don't know. You, you have inspired a Primal Scream song, though. Yes, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is so bizarre, which you is haven't? very strange. And that was a that was a, a a record that was pretty sort of seminal at its time, Screamadelica, and you were. Such a big part of that. It's, it Unloaded. You're, 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 uh, do you remember your dialogue from the Wild Angels uh, that got pretty, sampled? Pretty much, uh, and it blew my mind when that, that came to my attention. I thought, that's really far out. <laughs> Have you heard of a British movie called The World's End, which came out last year? No, no. Which samples uh, the same thing. The oh, really? The plays in the soundtrack. Oh, and, and so you're all over that one as well. Because oh, I don't think any of us. What knew- a charmed life I get to lead. <laughs> I don't think any of us really knew what loaded, what loaded kind of meant at that period. This was like, I guess, the early nineties, and it kind of slipped out of the vernacular. Oh, I yeah, so, right. so I guess looking at kind of those movies and that kind of cultural period, and, and and Easy Rider, which you're obviously here at the BFI to talk about in part, yes, yes. and Dennis Hopper, um, it it's something that people kind of discovered in different generations and, it, and it, for us maybe we didn't understand all of the cultural references but in Easy Rider you don't need to know the cultural references uh, because they're they're part of the film mm. and one of the brilliant things that Dennis did in the film was um, put Jack Nicholson as a drunk in jail with us and make him an alcoholic because people in, in the day when it came out we're not so sure, are those guys smoking drugs? Because we didn't say, you want some marijuana, Dennis? No. Mm-hmm. Billy, you want, you want some more pot? You know, we didn't do that. We were just passing the joint back and forth. And so those people in that audience who are kind of hanging back a bit, not so sure they want to watch a film with people smoking pot or whatever they thought it was, the, you know, reefer madness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, when Jack comes as, as an alcoholic, see, being an alcoholic was acceptable. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, he sucked all those people right into the film and they couldn't leave. Yeah. We, I, when I wrote the story, I wrote that in, that the lawyer is the first one to die because he's the most innocent one. <laughs> and uh, and it, it worked brilliantly. Apparently, Bob Dylan wasn't very happy with the ending of the movie. Is that well, true? Well, I, I don't know if he wasn't happy. First of all, he didn't want us to have any of the song because he didn't like his harmonica. And I told him a small story that I didn't want to have in the film. And there it is in the film, and I don't like it. And I'm the producer, and I wrote the thing. but I, And I said the lines. It was improvisational, but I said them. And uh, I don't want them in the movie, Bob. But I need to hear... Uh, Suicide remarks are torn from a fool's gold mouthpiece. The hollow horn plays wasted words and proofs to warn that he not busy being born is busy dying. Mm. And this is, this is me in a room about the size of this room with Dylan, his wife Sarah, and me and Hopper. And you see, so my mother cut her throat in a saint asylum when I was 10 from ear to ear. So I need those remarks. That blew Dylan down. And he had to give it up to me. 
But what we did in the original soundtrack that Dennis chose all the songs was we dial that music down. It goes under what we're doing in the screen. And we do what we're going to do. We get killed. And then the helicopter pulls away. And we started up the rest of It's All Right, Ma. It's uh, a question in your nerves is lit. Yet you know there is no answer fit to satisfy. Assure you not to quit. To keep it in your mind and not forget that it is not he or she or them or it that you belong to. I thought that was a brilliant song after we got punched because the whole audience watching that thing, whoa, what was that? Why did, why did they get hit? Why, why did they die? And there is no answer to satisfy that. So I thought that was ta- spot on the target. And Dylan said, no, you can't have that. I said, Bob, any fight's a combination of punches, a good fight. It's not just one. It's a whole bunch of leading up to the one. And he said, no, you've already said it in the movie. And I'm thinking, we have not. This is so free. He wouldn't give us the end. He picked up a pencil, wrote down on a pad of paper, The Ballad of Easy Rider. He said, uh, "Tell, uh, have McGuinn uh, put the music to it, and I can't take credit for writing it because of whatever crown tracks he had. And so we got The Ballad of Easy Rider. Uh, who knows which would have, would have been better? Maybe a question in your nerves is lit is too heavy. It would have made it very hard for the people walking out of the theater, as it was. People were going in really excited to see this movie about, you know, motorcycles and drugs and sex and wonderful things and music, and suddenly realizing, oh, my God, they got killed. And that was my intention when I wrote the screenplay, which Dennis said he he and he alone wrote. Ah. (laughs) There's a lot of uh, stories about the making of Easy Rider. Um, oh, I'm sure there is, but nobody knows mine yet. <laughs> uh, I, I, like many people, have read Easy Riders Raging Bulls. Now, right. some people who are mentioned in that book say that it's a load of baloney, the stuff in it. What's your view? Have you read it? Uh, yeah, and all the good stuff was stuff that I wrote. Because I, Peter Collier sat with me for hours, taping me. Um, it's not the kind of book that I'm interested in looking at. Not, not a, um, a dissection of our time because it's very hard to do that. And Peter Collier was not in close enough to have uh, have a credible attachment to what we were up to. We were in there, and we were close enough, and we had a credible attachment to it. You know, you can't hear about Jimi Hendrix and have an idea of what was going on. You have to see it. You have to experience it, you know. You have to experience being with the Beatles to understand what that's like, which is so incredible. You have to, you have to be in touch with stuff, stuff that's happening on the street. And now, who's out protesting? Nobody. Well, yes, some people do, but not enough. It wasn't like my generation changed the way things were done, not only in Hollywood, but in our country and politics. Do you feel any thread from that period and that movie in particular with films that are being made at the moment? Is there anything you've seen at the cinema that's, that's made you feel like that spark is still there? Well, I know it's with me. And so I know it's with other people, too. And I find movies that I like very much. It's quite hard today to make an independent film. Studios don't give you any money. They want the big tentpole films, uh, all with youth that, you know, youth-oriented stuff. And it, the banks don't lend any money. They're, they're all a bunch of crooks, as far as I'm concerned. But So you have to learn how to do what I did in Easy Rider. My principal photography was $292,000. That's nothing, man. So could I do that today? Probably for $400,000. But I'd have to make special contracts so we all could get through the union problems of traveling and shooting 
and not having every day off that's supposed to be because we had no choice. We had to. So we made our contracts. Uh, everybody who signed up with me, because I was producing the film, agreed to to shoot and and uh, run and then take two days off, for an example. Yeah. Uh, and And that worked. And that worked. But I don't know if the unions today would allow you to pull that off. We did then. You know, and you may not have to to be making a road film where you have to do so much running and, and gunning. It may be a, a film that's taking place on the street in the place in your neighborhood or something static, so you don't run into that problem. How much did it cost to insure Dennis Hopper back then? Not a thing, but it insured the whole film cost me eleven thousand dollars, and I was so pissed off. <laughs> I, I and I said I called the insurance guy and I said, "What the fuck do you think you're up to? You know, you're not in the film, you're not helping in any way, you're not doing anything, you're not hauling cable, you're not loading cameras, and you're just you're charging me eleven thousand bucks. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> you know." If you could insure a film today for $11,000, you'd be, thank you very much. Would you like to have a part in the film? <laughs> <laughs> you're, here, you're here in London to talk as part of the Dennis Hopper retrospective that's happening at the BFI. Mm-hmm. Your relationship with, with Dennis was quite interesting over the years, that it got quite fractious at times. You it fell did. Out. Yes, yeah. it, it did. But um, I can genuinely tell you the fracturing was all done by Dennis because of his increasingly warped mind. He just overdid the drugs. It was unreal, and I was losing my friend. He became angry. Yeah, he became a Republican. (laughs) (laughs) He wore a diamond pinky ring and smoked cigars. Wait a minute, Dennis, and played golf on top of it. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) You're not a golfer? Oh, no, no, no. I I go sailing. Okay. I, I sail large boats across vast amounts of water simply because I want to. And we don't care. We, we go right in the middle of the squall and put all the sails up and go for it. I understand that you're a master celestial navigator. I am a, a you... celestial navigator. And uh, now I'm obviated by GPS. But However, you could travel by the stars yeah, around... Any place. London, wherever. Oh, around London? Not so easy. No. Uh, though I found myself sometimes going out looking at the sky. If I see a star, I know approximately where I am. <laughs> if I can see, where is Arcturus? Oh, okay, there it is. Boom. You know, um, however, no, I, I couldn't navigate around London. That GPS can do that. But in a boat, the GPS is an electronic system. And saltwater electronics are oxymoronic. Mm. And uh, if it's such an oxymoron, that means eventually the GPS uh, working part is going to fry. Mm. And out comes my, 19, no, my 1898 Plath Sextant, which I bought it at, on King's Road here in London in 1963. Wow, and it's still working fine. Works perfectly. How does how does one become a master celestial navigator? You take classes, you you study very hard, and you learn how to on a moving deck of a boat uh, make a fix, make a shot. And it's hard. It it becomes a matter of rhythm, which is a very musical thing. But that's what you have to be doing. And normally, what we'll be listening to is this time stone that comes out. The time tone around here comes all out of uh, British radio. Oh. And it's a beep, 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 beep until 15 seconds before the hour or the minute. It's just tick, 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 tick. And now you, in the U.S. you hear at the tone, coordinated universal time. I fucking can't coordinate traffic in here. What are they talking about the fucking universe for? Those <laughs> idiots. Coordinated universal time will be five minutes, five hours and 23 minutes. Beep, beep, boop. 
<laughs> and uh, you put that radio on the king plank of the boat where it's not going to slide around too much, and you get that that rhythm tick, tick, every second. And it makes enough tone so you can get the, the... You find that star, and you bring it down by the section of the mirrors until on the beat you have it so that star will hit the horizon. That's when you mark it. When you bring the image of the star, which is in a mirror, and you see the horizon, it's a half mirror. Through the other part, you see the horizon. When an image of the star comes down, it's the horizon. That's your mark. So if you can make it happen on the minute, you're in fat shape. Wow. Sounds, sounds like you should have been in All Is Lost, the Robert Redford movie. You <laughs> would have been fine. Yeah. I, I, you know, I've sailed <laughs> too much. I'm looking at that film and thinking, oh, come on, give me a break. Is so, your boat called Easy Sailor? Nope. <laughs> no, my first boat uh, was Tattooed. It was a... It was built by and commissioned by, built for and commissioned by Cranston Boeing Pascal III. The important part of Cranston's name is Boeing. Right. The aircraft, yes. you know, not a dime was spared in building this incredible wooden yacht. And it was a beautiful sailing yacht. I loved it. I spent 15 years living on it. 40 years ago, I met the woman I'm married to right now whilst on that boat living off of Lahaina, Maui, in the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, I'm going back and building another one, 63 feet, fiberglass, not so tough to take care of, mm. but it's such a healthy life. Yes. It's a beautiful lifestyle, and it's, it's not only good for me internally in my mind, it's also good for me physically, externally. It's swimming and going about doing laps around the boat every morning before you have breakfast, uh, being on the, the decks, changing head soles, doing all that stuff. It's great physical workout, too. Uh, and... It's not in a gym with other people just pumping iron. Yeah. It's actually moving around on the ocean. It's a fabulous lifestyle. Well, Whenever I'm watching TV and Escape from L.A. happens to be on, <laughs> I, have, I have to keep watching until the shot of you on the surfboard. Oh, that's hysterical. Russell. Yeah. That's hysterical. I, I loved making that film. Doing This has been the joy of my life. You know, I didn't get paid a, a, a whole lot to do that part, but I got paid decently. And I got to to riff, you know. John Carpenter just let me go, and I started riffing. Out. You know, there he is. I first meet him. I said, "Far." And he he leaves, and I say, "Far out." Plis, Snake Pliskin and acid rain, because <laughs> they had a rain machine coming on top of me. You know, just having fun with that, um, and and I have fun with everything I do. If it's serious stuff, I still have fun with it, uh, because that's what happens when you're an actor. If you're doing your stuff correctly, you're having a good time. It's hard, maybe very emotional, but as soon as you can move a little, a few beats off that heavy emotional scene, and you feel like you, you got it. Mm. It's such a great feeling. Yes. I don't know how people can give up acting. Maybe they weren't really acting before because it's a drug. Yeah. Especially on stage, it's where we have intercourse with the audience. <laughs> Not literally. Think, no, it's think about it. It's it, it the monetary part of it is nil compared to what you can make in a motion picture, but this the sensual part of it, the sex with the audience, the intercourse with the audience, the interplay, the feeling on stage, the timing and how it changes, and you have to be moving with it. And if something accident happens, you have to go with that. And, and you know, it's quite an amazing feat to go on stage and talk to a live audience. It's really remarkable. It's a drug. It gives you such a high; it's unbelievable. Uli's Gold, ah. uh, one your second. You're obviously Oscar nominated for your screenplay for Easy Rider yeah. and uh, Best Actor nomination for Uli's Gold, which is a, a, a film that uh, a lot of people have a um, very 
severe soft spot for. Um, oh, you, me too. You play a beekeeper. Yes. Um, and I wonder if at any point a beekeeper obviously makes honey, you thought about going down the Paul Newman route of launching your own range of Peter Fonda honeys on the back of that movie. I wish I could do what Paul did, but I'm going to be starting too late in the game now, even with uh, Yuli's Gold. Uh, however, I did make 872 pounds of Tupelo honey. And until I did that film, I thought Tupelo Honey was just this dynamic song by Van Morrison. <laughs> yeah. And I find out Tupelo Honey is a very special honey. You can open that jar up and leave it open for a thousand years. It will never set up. It'll never crystallize. So you still have some? Uh, I think I've finished off about four years ago, the last of the 872 pounds. You know, I give it out to people and uh, it was fun to do because it's, it, it's incredible. It's called levulose. That's the sugar in, in Tupelo Honey. And the way they make that, they've, built, they've planted these Tupelo gum trees in the swamp around a bee yard. That's what we call where we keep the hives, the bee yard. And they would build a road into the middle of the swamp. Very illegal, but this was in the early 1900s, you know, 1915. And I could see some of the old tractors just resting away in the swamp. But there's no other bloom inside a swamp other than these gum trees. So the bees only work that bloom. Yeah. And... That's pure. The Chinese say they have Tupelo, but they, they can't s separate it. They don't understand that part. So true Tupelo honey only comes from the swamp systems in northern Florida on the Apalachicola River. This is all stuff, of course, I learned making Yearly's Gold. But also, I have to say, it was not a lot I was paid, but it was the best time I have ever had making a motion really? picture. Why is that? Can't explain it. The director was so brilliant. The script was so brilliant. I burst into tears when I finished it, reading it. It's Victor Nunez. We should, we should probably name-check the director. Victor Nunez is absolutely a genius. I know that Ed Harris worked for him in Flash of Green, and, he, and Ed absolutely agrees. This is one of the greatest men I've worked for, and I've worked for some pretty fucking great directors. You know, Robert Rossman was no slouch. Robert Wise was no slouch. <laughs> and, and, you know, and Dennis was no slouch either. And, you know, shit, um, I would have done it for free. Right. It's... it's just so beautiful and that, that I I told Victor that I said you write the best narrative directives I've ever read he said I do I said yes for an example on page uh, 116 scene 90 you said, <laughs> and I'd only read it once that's one of the faculties I have is able to it's not photographic it's, just, it's full absorption in the stuff I said you say uh, Yuli leaves the room with a gentle sorrow I said, Victor, there is not, uh, there, there is no internet lookup. There is no dictionary that's going to tell me about what is a gentle sorrow. Mm. That's your descriptive. My job now is to find that. Mm. That is so delicious to me. I've got to do this film. I want to find the gentle sorrow. I, I, I want to find the gentle sorrow. I want to find the other aspects of this character that make him frail or human and, and sometimes not right and sometimes way off. If you're looking for gentle sorrow, Peter, uh, the Empire podcast is, is a good place to start looking, I'll be honest. <laughs> is that how you guys look at yourself? I think this no, is hysterical. No. I love it. This, this has got great energy working for it. What the heck? And you can swear and I think it's really fascinating. We, we obviously interview lots of directors and, and screenwriters and, and actors in particular about what it is in a, in a and, and that's the question that you ask you know what is it about this film that, that grabbed you but that it could be such a small thing like you know two just, words just, just, yeah a few sentences mm. what did you have anything like that for the limey a, a steven soderbergh film which i think is is also uh, i love doing the limey it was uh and and i had met terry stamp 
1965 in Taormina, Sicily, at a film festival. Fellini was supposed to be, and Terrence Stamp was supposed to be. I thought, I got to be with the baddest boys. I was going to say. <laughs> you know, Fellini, you bet. Uh, Fellini didn't show, so it was Terrence and me getting smashed out of our heads, of course. And, you know, we would jump over walls to one villa to the next, and everybody had these roll-out bars. You know, these there's it's a bar, it's usually glass and brass, and they're on wheels. You can push that out near the pool, and you pull it in in the evening. Well, they didn't take it inside and lock it up, so you know, <laughs> you just grab whatever they've got, drink it, and 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 talk about our times and, and what was going down and what was going on. And that particular year, '65, was a very tough year for me, but interesting, a very interesting year also. So I, I remember saying with Terrence, uh, "We have to make a film together." I didn't realize that it would happen. 33 years later, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and uh, when I knew I was doing the film. And I got an email from Stamp, who said, this is going to be so fun to see you again. It's been such a long time. And I wonder if you remember what we were talking about. May I give you a hint? And a big capital V put in. And I thought, did he think he had to do that? I remember everything. I remember the exact sentences we said. Yes, it was Verushka, and I was having an affair with her. <laughs> was, you know, she was the number one model for Vogue and everything else in '65, and that was she was six foot two, and absolutely a, a fabulous person. And most men were afraid of her. I wasn't, so I got the I got the honey and the good stuff. <laughs> I got everything, and she was fabulous. So that was a good part of '65 for me. Yeah, I was gonna and say. then being able to handle it with Terrence, just villa hopping, <laughs> getting fucking smashed, villa hopping, and then saying we got to make a film. Thirty-three years later, there we are. And Soderbergh was great to work with, by the way. Did you pick up any Cockney rhyming slang from uh, Terrence? I actually picked up my, my cock, not rhyming slang, but slang from my first stepmother who taught me, let me see if I can remember, the, cor, cor blimey, don't it pong. <laughs> don't it pong. <laughs> don't it pong. And, uh, you know, doesn't it smell? Isn't <laughs> it terrible? <laughs> that, that was terrific. Terrence and I share uh, many things in our lives, some tough reputation that we don't deserve. And, uh, however, Terrence has done some incredibly cool films. So it's a pleasure to have worked with a limey you know, and actually have him there doing his limey stuff, and he was so fucking great. It seems like you made the most of the 60s. It wasn't a dull time for you. It was, it was not a dull time at, at all, yeah. and I did make the most of it, but I took a journey from being relatively square, if you can think of that way. Of course, other people would have said I was, you know, extraordinarily unsquare. You know, I was way out there. But that's just their viewpoint. I mean, I cannot go through life trying to correct people's attitudes about me. I wouldn't have time for my life. I mean, everybody assumes that I was out sailing around, you know, and that's a big, I have a, that was an 82 foot wooden sailboat uh, and loaded out of my mind. You know, you don't pull over and park at night. <laughs> you have to keep sailing. If you're taking a shot of a star, you can't be loaded to do that tricky, very precise work, you know, but if I tried my best to convince everybody that I wasn't loaded sailing around there, I wouldn't have time to remember the great parts of the sailing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So people are going to assume things about me. It used to bother the hell out of me. And uh, then I decided, well, fuck it. Let's just do it. <laughs> you know, I might as well be outrageous and see how they handle that. <laughs> so I would go out and do fucking outrageous shit. And uh, I would just do it to be outrageous because everybody was making me. I thought, well, if you're going to say it, I might as well do it. I didn't kill people. <laughs> 
and I, neither did I dose somebody. So, yeah. w- uh, was part of the outrageousness uh, you wearing no shoes and socks? Oh God, you remember that you heard yeah, about that? Yeah, uh, that was so fucking cool. And I'm not trying to call myself a cool person, but you have to understand when we go out and do publicity for stuff like I'm doing right now. Uh, and we don't often get to have it as fun as this is. It's an interview. It's work. You're not just talking. You're trying. You're selling the film, and you want to make it interesting so people come and see the film. This is the whole marketing idea. And however, I'm now used to dealing with interviewers who have these concepts of me, and that's where they want to go, and I don't want to go there. So I had this beautiful, custom-made, but double-breasted suit, a Battistoni shirt. An Aramis tie, no shoes, no socks. So when the interviewer came in the room, the first thing that person saw, because I was dressed to the nines, was bare feet. That's the end of the interview. They don't, no, they'd forget what it was they wanted to get. <laughs> I've got them, and I can go sell the film. <laughs> we should, and it worked. It made, let me tell you, it worked perfectly. We should note that you do have shoes and socks on. I have today. them on. No, I only you, did it for that moment. I did it for two days, yeah. and it was hysterical. Can you tell us about your shoes? You were telling me about them just before we started the record. You got some pretty special shoes on. Oh, yeah. These are Oakley Formula One driving shoes. Now, of course, at my age, I'm not about to jump in a Formula One car and go driving. However, at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, they have all these nifty cars, man. You've got to get in them and drive them up the hill. You know, and there's Sterling Moss and, uh, and Jackie Stewart and, and, you know, X and all the great racers up there. Man, you've got to be able to shift gears. You've got to be able to hit those pedals and have the right shoes, after all. <laughs> Once again, your footwear is uh, getting noticed in interviews, so st- you still got it. Um, there's a couple more of your movies I, I really want to ask about sure. quickly. Hired Hand, which mm. was your first film directing. That's right. And um, I read that uh, your dad, Henry, was a fan of it. He, he enjoyed it, obviously. He, you know, he was no slouch when it came to westerns himself. He did, but he didn't see it at... The, the first part at all he saw it way later in his life and his comment was to me so fantastic he says now that's my kind of western mm. one of the great western actors right says that's my kind of western but that said in Easy Rider I remembered something I heard when I was 14 and I didn't know what I was going to do in life. If anybody at 14, well, maybe Stephen Hawking knew what he was going to do in life at 14. I didn't know. Uh, Bobby Fischer maybe knew. But Mm -hmm. the thing was, I heard Cooper say this, and my father, Randolph Scott, Jimmy Stewart, and Gary Cooper were in the backyard of Cooper's place. Jane and I were playing with Cooper's daughter, Maria. And I just heard this, not knowing how to apply it. If I know what I'm doing, I don't have to act. Whoa, mm. man, now I know what that means. Mm. You do. If you if you get enough, if you work hard enough and work at that character, mm. you know what to do. No matter if something strange happens, we call that the accident. If it's not a mistake, if it's an accident, it's brilliant. You want that. Uh, and if you know what you're doing, you don't stop because it was a, that accident. A mistake is something else. I'm using Jean Cocteau, who said 98% of art is accident. 1% is logic, and 1% is intellect. <laughs> and I heard Jean Cocteau say that out loud. In other words, I got to meet that guy, and Bunuel, and, and Picasso, and all these people. But 98% of art is accident. Boy, if you're able to, in a movie, have an accidental moment, and people don't stop working, continue going through with in character, 
and deal with it, that's a moment that the generational loss that happens before that movie is projected onto a screen. And you've got to remember, that's the camera's the first, then it comes to negative, and then to positive, and then the cut negative, and then the release positive, and then it's shown by a projector by, onto a screen and reflected onto your eyes. That's a lot of loss from the moment. But if you have that moment where it's that action plays, the audience doesn't know this. Mm. You don't, I mean, I, I wouldn't go out and tell an audience that our press or so forth that if I was promoting film that that happened because that gives it away. But if the audience doesn't know it and they see it happen, what happens is they get sucked right into that moment. And it's real for them because it was real for us. It's real for them and they can't get out of the movie at that <laughs> time. So you want that. You you want to ha you can't make it happen. It's contrived, so it means a lot of people have to be thinking. If I know what I'm doing, I don't have to act. And that way, if something happens that shouldn't, you know, right here in the in the studio, if you know a bullet came whizzing through and we we just decided to keep on talking about it, you know, it does happen. It does happen from time to time. Well, yeah, I can see the stuff on the walls. I mean, you, they replace the glass, of course. Yeah. But, the, you know, this looks like the Berlin Wall from the other side. <laughs> on the one side, it was painted and wonderful. On the other side, just bullet holes. We get instant feedback from our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I, this isn't obviously specifically relevant, but I'm just so curious about, about uh, your dad, Henry, um, when he was in Once Upon a Time. In, in the West, which is one of my favorite, not just Westerns, but films of yeah. all time. And he made such an incredible, iconic switch from playing the good guys to in one moment embodying this this psychopath. Did you, I mean... Who shoots a kid yeah. in his did, stomach. Did you ever talk to him about shooting that sequence? And no, no, his I mean, I just took that as an actor. God, he got it, that's cool. But I know there's a whole bunch of people in the world who saw Henry Fonda in a different light and could not handle the fact that he gut shot a kid. Yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, you just don't see that no. in films, really, and, ever, and, you know, that, that was uh, the beauty of Leone, doing this stuff, mm. you know. And my dad, being the, the great actor that he was, was able to see, oh yeah, I'll do that. And it, but he had made contact lenses, brown contact lenses. Mm. For some reason, he wanted to do that for his character. Leone was blown away. No, no, no. He wanted those blue eyes. Yeah, he wanted that incredible close up of Frank's eyes before he shoots the kid. You know, <laughs> I in fact I went down there shooting a, a commercial for Citroen, directing a commercial, and we shot in Elmira, Spain, and we went by the big house where. My father, his big house, that big giant house. And as we were finished the shoot, we were coming back at the end of the whole thing. I had made this, this sign by scotch taping pieces of paper. And I had the whole crew out there. And I got a camera, a Canariflex. I closed the eyepiece. And I just ran it off on us. And we were holding this big sign, once a pot of time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from the, the Beatles. Yeah. In my life. I had the pleasure of uh, meeting your sister Jane and interviewing her last month uh, oh, for a cool. new movie that she's in. She spoke very entertainingly about her tendency to overshare when it comes to oh, yeah. sex. <laughs> Is this something you experienced <laughs> growing up, or does she does she uh, make an exception? Oh, I can't go there. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, sex has played a great part in my life. What the heck? <laughs> sure. Sure. Not just in the birthday of my children, but you know, in many Farushka. That's who can touch that. Right. Nineteen sixty-five. Right. Well, it's such an amazing family, though. Such a color, so many colorful personalities, and so much talent. It's just. A... Well, the interesting part is to be sure you understand that it's not in our genes. Mm. This stuff doesn't get passed down in genetically ways. Uh, the genetics 
do something else. Color of eyes, shape of your nose, your hair, whatever. But this is something you work at acting. Mm. And if you're not, then you're just being a, a figure on film and not an actor. And there are people who do that too, but it's the working part of it that's the taste. Because only if you've worked for it can you taste it when you when you hit that moment, when you fill it. And Jane told me she's going to the set always worried if she'd find any moments to fill. And I go to the set thinking, oh man, I got these few moments. Let's see how many more I can find. Yeah. This, is so, this is so cool. I'm excited to go to it. But Jane is driven and I'm a driver. That's the difference in our two characters. Our talent, what we do on screen has nothing to do with our genetics. Our looks do, but nothing else. My daughter, Bridget, was the one that brought that out. When somebody told her, well, of course, it's in your genes. And she got offended. Mm. It's nothing to do with my genes. I work at this. I thought, right on. <laughs> right, right. Fuck. I just wanted to quickly circle back to Easy Rider because I'm, Darn. Not, sure, I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, there's a sequel which came out last year. Oh, I am so aware of that piece of shit. Oh, man, are you kidding me? That guy truly believes he looked like me. He had a bad hair dye job. <laughs> he stole my whole uniform, my whole costume. Bitch stole my look, man. And made a bike that looked like, you know, I had even met him and said, don't try to do this. The critics are going to step all over you. You know, you have no idea. Oh, no, this is going to be, you, you, you've got to support me. I said, fuck you, I'm not going to support you. But if you're going to try to do a movie like we made, find your easy rider today. Go out on the road and see what's happening today. Do it yourself today. Don't try to be me. Don't try to hook on to my tales. Go out and make your own because I did that. Dennis and I went out and made our own movie, which blew apart the movie industry in, in Hollywood. And we didn't set about to do that. It's just they had no idea how to do what we did. But they, could only, they didn't know how to reach that young audience. And we were part of that young audience. We were, well, I was too rich to be a hippie, but <laughs> I was there. <laughs> and I still remember it. So if you remember it, you weren't there, fuck it. I remember every bit of it. That's one of the, the curses that I have, or good things, is I remember everything. I'm into the detail. Jane can't do the de details. I'm into the details. That's what I can do. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming and sharing some of some of the, I mean, that we could talk for hours. Oh, yeah, more, I don't know how you're going to edit this down. <laughs> no, we can. How you choose which story you want to hear. We'll probably just run it all at worst before we go off and learn a celestial navigation. Celestial navigation. You've got to that now as well. It's, it's a must if you're on a boat. <laughs> yes. We need to get a boat as well and make a note. Thank you very much for, for oh, coming. Oh, it's my to pleasure. Thank us, you Peter. for giving me this opportunity just to chat with you guys and go so crazy. <laughs> Not even loaded. I'm drinking water, you guys. <laughs> we're still having a good time, even uh, though we're not yeah. loaded. 